I'd like to invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Romans, continuing our study through Paul's epistle to the Roman church, and we'll beginning, be beginning chapter 3, beginning in 3 verse 1 and going all the way to verse 20. We'll be reading God's Word this morning under the heading of Everyone Under Sin. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 1, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness shows to show, serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to it this morning. My most dear friends, this week while I was studying, I came across a story which I hope is fictitious where a man awakened one morning with a dreadful headache which persisted for a few days. And so he goes to the doctor and when he does his test, the doctor finds out that it's very clear that this man has a deadly form of cancer. But the doctor knew that this man had a good life and he was moving on to some good things and not wanting to shatter his joy or hurt his family Instead of telling the man the truth about his diagnosis, he told him everything would be okay. What would you call such a thing? Is that kindness? 
Well, we have a word for that in our culture. It's called malpractice. I think I speak for everybody that we want our physicians to tell us the truth so that once we receive the diagnosis, we can then seek the proper treatment. But do we want the truth about our spiritual sickness this morning? The Apostle Paul is a good physician. He tells us the truth about our spiritual condition. He has set before us since, remember Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. And that God is plainly clear to all people. He has told us the consequences of rejecting the knowledge of God as being given over to sins. He's even not held back against His own kinsmen. We saw in Romans chapter 2, He's shown the hypocrisy of the Jews who boasted in the covenant, and the law, and circumcision, and then He gives that oh-so-profound word in verse 29 of chapter 2 that the Jew is one Inwardly. It's a condition of the heart. But now today, He draws both the Gentiles and the Jews together. And He says, everyone without distinction is under sin. The diagnosis here is not that sin has just scratched the surface. It's not that it's in the periphery of our lives, but we're under it. It's oppressive. It's everywhere. It's always upon us. And I understand this morning. This is not the popular message. It's no more popular than when you sit with the doctor and they tell you the bad news. But what I want to show you from Romans is that this diagnosis is vastly more hopeful than the bad news the physician gives us. A doctor may or may not have a cure when we are sick. But the diagnosis of being under the power of sin in a child of wrath always has a cure. Paul's going to give us the news straight. We are more sinful than we ever thought we were. But as we've reflected on already in these last three chapters, we are more loved than we could ever dare hope for. We need to hear about the sickness of sin. But Paul will turn our eyes to a glorious cure in Christ. Notice our theme this morning, but by the blood of Jesus, no one is righteous in God's sight. We just have two points. We want to see from Romans 3, the objections and the verdict. You know, by, by my count in the Greek, there are no less than nine questions about Paul's prior teaching included in chapter 3, verses 1-20. through 20. And this shouldn't be a surprise for us. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that the Jews took great pride in their circumcision, took great pride in their covenant blessings and in the law. And now Paul has said, 
the true Jew is one of the heart. I think we can understand these first eight verses here almost like Paul is in a classroom. And as soon as he says the true Jew is of the heart, imagine hands going up. Teacher, teacher, what do you mean the true Jew is of the heart? We see that in verse 1. What is the advantage that the Jew has? Or what is the value of circumcision? These are the raised hands of his students. But I want to boil this down instead of looking at all nine questions into two thoughts this morning. They're really asking, is God faithful to the Jews? And is God just to the Jews? Is God faithful? The first question the Jews would have asked is, what is the advantage? What is the value of being a Jew? But look at Paul's answer. So much. So much. They have been given so much from God, and he outlines that they've actually been given the greatest gift. They've been given the Word of God. He says in verse 2, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, depending on the Bible that you have with you here this morning, that word, to begin with, may be different. In the ESV, as I mentioned, it's translated as to begin with. In the King James Version, it's translated as chiefly. But the word in the Greek is literally proton, which means first. And so people have had to wrestle with this. Why does Paul say first, but then as we read chapter 3, there's no second, is there? Almost like you're starting a list for the groceries and then forget the rest. You know, proton can also be translated as above all. I don't think this is an insertion that somebody wrote first here when after Paul gave them this letter. Or that Paul simply forgot the rest of his list. But he's saying that the greatest benefit, even though the Jews had many benefits, which we saw last week, and Paul will outline in Romans 9, they've been adopted, given the covenant, they've been given the, the Word of God, they've been given the law. Paul says the greatest gift is that they have been given the Word, entrusted with the oracles of God. The reason the Word is the greatest gift, above glory, the covenants, the temple, the promises, and the patriarchs, is because the Word of God is meant to lead us to repentance. Remember one of the most important verses of Romans chapter 2. Look there, if you will, with me. Romans 2, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The oracles of God are given to us, the Word of God is given to us, that we might see our sin and turn to Him for mercy. 
to turn to Him for salvation. The Lord Jesus even taught us this in Luke chapter 24 when He's on the road to Emmaus. He tells them that beginning with the Moses and all the prophets, He says in Luke 24, verse 44, He says that all of these things pertain to Me. In the Word of God is the revelation of Christ. The greatest gift that the Jews have been given is that God has shown them Jesus even when they were unfaithful. Christ was there. His mercy was there. And this is supposed to be true for us as well. I like this quote from R.C. Sproul. He says, there is no greater advantage in our lives than to be within earshot of the Word of God. I mentioned to you last week that I was raised in the church. And this was a great blessing uh, to me to be raised as the church, in the church. Um, but as many of you know, uh, the church in which I was raised uh, had uh, less than a strong biblical foundation. Um, but to their credit, They would read the Word of God every Sunday. And they would encourage the people to read the Word of God as well. And this was a great advantage to me. Because even though I wasn't raised in a church that strongly preached the Word, or even sometimes strongly valued the Word, still through the Word, God worked in me the testimony of of the Bible. He saved my soul in that church. My best friend was saved in a Roman Catholic church. Wherever the Word is read, as unfaithful sometimes as our churches may be, or as weak as we may be, if the Word is read, God can still bless it. And this was the great advantage of the Israelites. They were given the testimony of Jesus in the Old Testament, the oracles of God. And it's here I want to encourage our parents that are here this morning. You know, I was the kid my parents had to drag to church. And I would sit there and I didn't want to sing the hymns. I didn't want to open the Bible. And I didn't want to listen. But my parents kept saying, focus on the Word. And when I was struggling, that's where they encouraged me to go. Through that means, God worked in my life. And Paul says it where He worked in the Israelites' life as well. Remember that it's the Word alone that can soften the hearts, my friends. It's the Word alone that can change the mind. It's the Word alone that can pierce our souls and bring us to Jesus. It's the greatest gift that we have. Encourage each other in the Word. And notice what Paul is saying. Is that even if being a true Jew is of the heart, he's saying God is faithful. It's not that God has turned His back on the Jewish people, but that God will always be faithful to the promises of His Word. 
Elsewhere, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, if we are faithless, He remains faithful. That's the problem that we're addressing. How can God still be called faithful if we are faithless? Look at the next verse where Paul addresses or ask this question again, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? If some Jews don't trust in God's promise, does that make him unfaithful, is the question. And look at Paul's answer. May it never be. I like the way that our older translations translated this. God forbid... God will always be faithful to the Word even if the world rejects Him. In fact, look at verse 4, even if the whole world rejected Him. Even if we got together as a human race and determined we don't believe in God, He would still be faithful. And human failure, far from nullifying His promises, actually causes God's promises to stand out in their beauty. No one knew this better than King David. We remember that King David had grievously sinned when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And then he abused his power as the king of Israel, trying to cover up his affair by killing Uriah. Remember that the prophet Nathan comes to him in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And he tells them that parable, the rich man who had many sheep, and the poor man who had one, and the rich man stole the one man's sheep. And he says, what do you think we should do with the man? And David says, the man should die. And what does Nathan say? You are the man. In Psalm 51 we have, psalm, we have a psalm of David's confession of his sin with Bathsheba and his murdering, murdering of Uriah. And he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your sight. That's what Paul's quoting here. David is saying, Even though I was sinful, Lord, you are found faithful. Even though every, even if it was every man was a liar, God, you would be faithful, David's sin. It didn't nullify God's faithfulness. In fact, David's own sin reveals how blameless God is. And so, if you were in a theological class and the pastor said to you, Our sins actually show how good God is. You can imagine the hand. Pastor, are you saying that my sins actually show God's faithfulness? Am I doing Him a favor by sinning then? What does Paul say to that question? May it never be. Now, admittedly, these next three, four verses 
can be quite confusing. He has just shown that God is going to remain faithful, will always be faithful, even when we are not faithful. But in these next four verses, there are five questions in four verses. They could confuse us, but one of the clues to help us understand is notice how similar verse 5 and 7 are. Read these together with me where it says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? Verse 7, But if through my lie God's truth or God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? The question here is, are we doing God a favor when we are unrighteous? And when we lie? And the answer is sandwiched in between that question. Verse 6, for then how could God judge the world? From the beginning of the Bible, one of the most important parts of our God is that He is just. Remember when Abraham was with the Lord before Sodom and Gomorrah? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? This question is actually suggesting that God is unfair. That He isn't just. And if God isn't just, we need to be afraid as His people. This will have major implications for the rest of the book of Romans. Put it this way. If you were hauled away for a crime you didn't commit, and you are blameless, and you come before a just judge, do you have any reason to fear? What's the answer? Of course not. I'm blameless, and I will be found blameless. But if God is unjust, if you come before an unjust judge, we should all be quaking in our boots. Because He could just as easily throw us away and put us in prison for the rest of our lives. What Paul is actually suggesting here in these four verses verses 5-8, through is that because God is just, we need not fear. We don't need to be afraid as the people of God. Even if we struggle with sin, we will see in just a few moments that by faith in Christ, we need not fear the judge. But to suggest that the judge would be anything less than just is a thought that Paul won't even give much credence to. As Hendrickson says, it's almost like Paul dismisses it immediately. immediately. The condemnation is just. We can't even think of this because it compromises the character of God. What the Apostle Paul is doing in these first eight verses of Romans chapter 3 is he's saying, God is still faithful. He is still just in Christ. We will see in just a moment. I want to 
give you a few words of application this morning. We should praise God that He is always faithful and always just. Even when our hearts are cold. Didn't we just sing that? Out of my bondage, sorrow, and night. Even when my heart is cold, I can come to Jesus. What a blessing we have in the Christian religion that God is not capricious. He is not changing day to day. But as Moses says, He is always faithful from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. He is still faithful to us even though every day of every moment of every day we are changing. And again, I want to emphasize to you It is such a privilege to have the Word of God. Let us never forget His promise. Even when the church seems so weak, even when it seems to fall on deaf ears, God says that His Word shall never return to Him empty, but will accomplish that for which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I have sent it. My friends, keep reading the Word. Love the Word. Cherish the Word. Read it with your children. Read it in the morning. Read it in the evening. This is the power of God to change hearts and minds. The flip side of this is you need to also remember the power of God is not in the preacher. The power of God is not in the program. It's not in the church building anyways. The power of God is in the Word. It alone can soften the heart, change the mind, and pierce the soul. Cherish the Word. So we change settings here in Romans. We move from the classroom where people are shooting up hands, asking questions. Imagine with me here this morning that we move to the courtroom where Paul in these last 11 verses gives the verdict. This is where Paul has been leading us since Romans 1 verse 18. He says in our ESV Bible, verse 9, What then? In other translations, it says, what shall we conclude? This is the conclusion of his whole thought about sin. And look at the conclusion. Are the Jews any better off? This is his conclusion. No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. No, none is righteous. No, not one. He's wrapping it in a bow, if you will. He makes this accusation. If you're a Jew, you are therefore also a sinner. And you are under the sentence of condemnation. Romans 2, 1 through 3, 8. If you are a Gentile this morning, you are therefore also a sinner. And under the sentence of condemnation, we see that in Romans 1, 18-32. Therefore, says Paul, the whole human race 
is condemnable before God. Notice who he says, or who he uh, refers to in verse 9. He says, we. He's not saying, it's you, and not me. You, and not the spiritual. You, and not the Christians. He's saying, all of us receive this accusation. Allow me to put it this way. You, Paul, and I are by nature sin-laden, guilt-burdened, and under the power of sin. The terms under sin and unrighteousness, I think, refer to the same thing, but different aspects of our sinful state. Unrighteousness is a positional term. It means how we stand before God. And how we stand before Him, he says, is condemned. To be under sin is a legal term. can refer to our citizenship. That we are citizens of sin. Of lawlessness. And his point is this. Our status before God is the same. All people, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, male, female, black or white, whatever you may be, we're all equally lost, equally condemned under sin. And so Paul, in order to prove this point, Notice what he does. He actually quotes the Old Testament. He's quoting here six Old Testament passages. And if we tallied them up, really there's 14 individual points here. But what he's really trying to say to us, he says, this isn't my opinion. And you need to know this this morning. This isn't just Pastor Jacob's opinion. He's quoting the Word of God. This is God's opinion. Did you notice also as we read it, there's a theme that runs throughout it. Notice with me that in verses 11 and 12, it speaks of our character. In verse 13 through 14, it speaks of our conversation. The throat, the mouth, the tongue, the lips. And then verses 15 through 18, it speaks of our conduct. I just want to give a few moments meditation to those three things. The first thing Paul mentions is our character. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Even though, Paul says earlier in the book of Romans, everyone knows there's a God, now he's saying no one in their natural condition seeks Him out. There was an old uh, theologian named Thomas Aquinas who was once asked by one of his students, why does it seem, why are people seeking? What are they looking for? 
To which he replied, when we see people seeking for purpose in their lives, pursuing happiness and looking for relief from guilt to silence the pangs of their conscience, we know that what they're looking can only be found in Christ. But the dilemma is that we want the things that only God can give, but we do not want Him. He goes on, he says, we want peace, but we don't want the Prince of Peace. We want purpose, but we don't want God's sovereign purpose. We want meaning, but we don't want the author of life. Paul says, in our natural fallen status, we don't seek for God. But he's not done with us yet, is he? He then turns to show us our conversation. Again, notice the emphasis on speech in verses 13 and 14. He says, Their throats are an open grave. They use tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Remember that Paul is seeking to prove here the fallenness of the human nature and the power of sin. And it's not by accident that he doesn't pick the worst sin. Or the most wretched example. But he picks one of which we're all guilty of. The sins of the tongue. With respect to this sin, who can honestly say they're not guilty? In human history, who can say they're not guilty of sinning with their mouths? Remember, James in the New Testament will later say that the tongue is like a fire, a world of unrighteousness set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. Every single one of us knows what Paul is talking about. We have all spoken too quickly. We have all destroyed others. Our mouths can be cruel monsters ready to devour our victims. Paul says this is one of the greatest evidences of our fallenness because as Jesus says in Matthew 12, it's out of the heart that our mouths speak. What a sad moment when the words that comes out of our, come out of our mouths reveal the sorry condition of our hearts. When we curse, when we lie, when we deceive, when we gossip, when we lash out, it vividly illustrates how far our hearts have fallen. And the third thing he says is that he notices that of our conduct. Notice the emphasis here on the body and actions. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, I don't need to speak too much on this one. Because all you need to do is turn on the news and you'll get the rest of this passage. Whether it's wars in Africa, in the Middle East, in Europe, gang violence in our neighborhood, drugs, drugs, or the objectification of the opposite sex, families that don't get along, all of these things testify to the human condition. But maybe the most important piece in this passage, and he says that the way of peace 
they have not known. I don't know about you, but I don't feel like there's any peace in this world. We all say we want peace, we desire peace, but we don't have peace. In my short life on earth, I have seen some of the most beautiful, rich, and successful people who I would assume have peace take their own lives for lack of peace. Again, when Paul lists these verses, we know it's true. That sin only leaves a trail of pain and despair and heartache It ruins us. It's our misery. It leads to restlessness, not peace. That's what Paul's describing in these verses. And so he gives us the verdict. At the end, I want you just to notice this with me very quickly. He began this all the way back in Romans chapter 118. And now he concludes with an undeniable verdict of guilty. When he says those under the law, he means everybody. The whole world stands before God in silence. Every mouth is shut. The defense attorney has no defense. And this is the final verdict. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's what this whole section of Romans is about. Every person has to stand before God, and every person is unrighteous. We stand before God condemned not only because of what we do, but what we don't do. Not only for our sins in public, but our sins in private. We are damnable not only because of what we say or do, but because of who we are. There is only one verdict at chapter 3, verse 20. And the verdict is guilty. As one pastor says, If you can't say amen, you can at least say ouch. If Romans ends at 3.20, we would conclude that there is no hope, wouldn't we? But I want to point out one final thing about this passage in Romans chapter 3. Did you notice in these first 20 verses that there is not a single mention of faith? There is not a single message, mention of Jesus Christ. But Paul says in verse 19, he is speaking from the vantage point of the law. It's the law who looks at you and says, there is no one righteous. But in verse 21, in the vantage point of Christ, Look what Paul says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know this now. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The good news, says Paul, is that God has actually intervened. Even though we were stuck in our sins, dead in our sins, in Romans 1, 18-3.20, we are sinful and barefoot before God. But in Romans 3, 21-12, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We go from condemned to justified, to diseased, to clean, from dirty to spotless in Him. Our sinful condition is worse than we could ever believe. But the salvation offered in Christ is more amazing than we could ever conceive of. I know I just sat with you as the doctor did and told you the bad news. And it's bad. But the grace of God in Christ is better, is greater than your condition. Consider this morning the whole message of Romans. See the verdict that's pronounced. But no, next Sunday we'll look at the provision that is made in Christ. See the wickedness of sin. And turn from it this morning. Turn from it and go to the all-sufficient Savior who has kept the law perfectly. Christ has never turned aside. He has never uttered a sinful word. He has never had feet that were swift to shed blood. In fact, He gave His own blood to cleanse us. When we couldn't seek Him, He came to seek and to save the lost. Not so that we could earn His love and be accepted by anything other than the perfect righteousness of Christ, which is ours by faith. Sin is worse, but His grace is greater. Let's pray. Merciful God, we do give You thanks for Your Word, that You even give us the hard news. How far have we fallen that every single part of us, our head, our hearts, and our hands, have been stained with sin. But You have looked at us in Your mercy and Your grace, not by any works of our hands, giving us the righteousness of Christ so that we might be justified before Your sight. For this we worship and praise You this day. In Jesus' name. Amen.